Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Focusrite, supplying hardware and software products used by professional and amateur musicians, which enables the high-quality production of music. Focusrite, sound is everything. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joe Wanasek, and Eyal Levy. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Joey Sturges Forum Podcast. Today with us, we have Mike Mowry who is a awesome manager that I've worked with a lot and president and managing partner of Outer Loop Management. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing well, thanks. How about yourself? Pretty good. So I think a lot of our audience right now is very interested in kind of learning more about music business and probably more so band business, because I think it's kind of hard for a lot of people to think of the concept of playing music as a business, at least in the sense that you would think of it, um, I would imagine. Yeah, I I would agree. (laughs) (laughs) So can you walk us through a little bit about how, you know, the climate has changed in the last couple of years and what are some of the things that people should be thinking about if they want to, you know, succeed as a band in in 2016? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty big question, you know, I mean, it's a wide spread. Yeah. I mean, I guess just an issue like the industry has changed and it will continue to change. And, you know, to me, change is inevitable and sometimes it's exciting and sometimes, you know, it's frustrating, but I think the bigger part of any time within the music business you know, you kind of hear these cliche things of, oh, well, you know, it's got to start with great songs and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But really, there's some like fundamental things that artists should be focused on no matter what is happening within the business. And so music is a part of it. And of course, you know, I can sit here and say, oh, well, we need great songs. And that's why people like, you know, you sort of exist. Uh, One of the many reasons why people like you exist, great producers are, you know, they can help craft, you know, better songs, presumably. But then there's, you know, the whole other part, there's the branding component. And that I think has become more important like than ever. And I'll touch back on that in a second. And then the third thing is really understanding like the band being a business from the outset. And I think that's really the hardest part for a lot of artists to wrap their head around, because if you're starting in a band and you're in your teens or maybe your early 20s, like presumably you're doing the music because You know, you want to do something alternate to like being in business. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and and so one of my biggest challenges with young bands and even bands that aren't so young is really trying to help them understand the way that a business works. And, you know, that, yeah, that can just be such. How different is that than 10 years ago, like 10 years ago, did you find that you had to educate bands as to how business works quite as much? Well, you know, what's different is I know so much more now of how it works. And so I don't know if it has been that much different other than to me, I understand the fundamental importance of it now more so than I did back then. So hard to answer that one. Yeah, but I think one of the strengths of someone in your position is that you, you know, can give that wisdom to people who are younger who would have no way of seeing that because, you you know, you have the experience. So going back to point two uh, that you yeah. talked about with branding, um, can you elaborate a little on that? Yeah. So, you know, as a guy who really enjoys working with developing artists you know, and again, this is stuff that I've I've had to learn or really hone my skills on and understand its importance. You know, I always like to bring bands in and, and I've got this cool like whiteboard wall in the conference room in my office. And, you know, I bring them in and, you know, kind of got the big screen on one end and this whiteboard wall. And, you know, I get in there all professor like and start to, <laughs> you know, like start this. to. You know, and of course, nobody really realizes that it's a whiteboard wall. They think it's, you know, just a white wall. And I start writing on it and they look at me like I'm really deranged. But they've never seen um, one before. (laughs) (laughs) But I start to talk about, you know, the branding component. And one of the things that I like to say is, you know, 
Name like the worst band name possible. And actually, all three of you should do this for me. Tell me what you think is the worst band name of all time. Of a big band? Doesn't matter. Yeah, But yeah, big is more helpful than, you know, some completely corn. obscure band. Okay, corn. <laughs> corn, corn is terrible. Agreed. Yeah. Corn's a great name. It's got that reverse R and no one had that. I mean, come on. You want to talk about branding? They hit that shit out of the park. Okay. Uh, how about... Uh uh, Limp Biscuit is pretty bad. Ding, 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 ding. That is always my example because it is, it to me is the worst name ever, but it became a household name. And why is that? It's because before, you know, everybody was equal on the internet, you know, the industry at large with radio and majors and everything could have bands grow. So by the time, you know, you really thought about the name, it was already ingrained in your head as just, you know, these two words that went along with this awesome song, Nookie. And so you never really thought about it. And now 10 years, 15 years later, we can go back and look and say, God, that was a fucking really, really, really bad name. (laughs) Today, if you tried to launch a brand new band with the name Limp Bizkit, you get laughed. Yeah, you would get laughed. And and These Nuts is a perfect example to me, you know? (laughs) Hey, that's a great record. (laughs) It is a great record. But to me, and they do very well in Australia and they do very well in Europe and, you know, like some of the bands that I have managed are really good friends with those dudes. And, you know, it's nothing against them, but to me, it was always, it was never really going to work here because I, I do, I think that the name was really going to hold them back. Now there's exceptions to every rule. Like this is in everything that I talk about. And this is what I always say to young bands and say to everybody in the industry, like I can sit here and sort of like, you know, speak about all these things that I think are, are helpful and you can, of course, go find an exception. Yeah, yeah. But to me, it's really, really, really super important to have, you know, a great name, a great logo, great photos, great video, all of that stuff out of the, out of the gates. And that's where it's really changed. All that stuff was always important, but there was other ways to kind of get a leg up before, you know, you really had to focus on some of that stuff. And to me, that is the the component of branding and, you know, likeness that really is a skill set that, you know, bands need to have in place when everybody's in that same equal space of the Internet trying to compete. Yeah, now I've seen some bands who get they totally get point number two we're calling point number two branding or whatever. So I've seen people they have you know, they look they have nice visuals, their logo looks good, they got good pictures, but then there's something else, you know, maybe the music's not very good. Maybe they're not very organized and their page hasn't had any activity for, you know, three weeks or something like that. So I think it's important to state that branding's not everything, but it's definitely a very important part of, of the, the whole machine. Can you speak to a little bit more about the actual importance of social networking for bands nowadays? Because I also see that there's a lot of people that are using social networking, but not quite in the right way. And uh, I think it would be nice to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I'm actually interested to hear, you know, how you think people aren't using it in the right way. But, you know, I'll spamming, (laughs) spamming, carpet bombing, (laughs) just ridiculous. Like every getting messages in my private mailbox every day from people that I don't know saying, hey, I see that you like this band, which I don't like. (laughs) Why don't you check out? My friend's band, it's right up your alley. And then getting the same exact message, but from a different person the next day. Stuff like that. My favorite one is when you get the private message on Facebook and it's like, hey, thanks for the ad. I see you're a producer. Check out my band. We're really awesome. We're really broke, though. We're from fill in the blank. And, um, you know, it's really a struggle here. But, you know, if you want to come work with us for free, it would be, you know, (laughs) like what? Another good one is you have been added to an event 5,000 miles away. Right. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing I see a lot of bands doing wrong, and this is kind of coming from an insider point of view because my fiance is in a band, a signed band. And it's that people just don't use social networking sites the way they're intended to be used. Facebook is intended to have something where your audience can engage with whatever you're 
posting on there. You know, it's not about just informing people. It's about getting them to interact with the post, to like it and to comment on it and to talk about it and to share it. And if you're just posting your show dates and just telling people, hey, go watch this. Hey, go listen to this. Hey, go look at that. That's not very engaging. That doesn't give the audience a chance to give back. There already is an infrastructure for posting your show dates. It's called events. And I've read that it's supposed to be something like one out of every five posts should be promotional. And so the rest of the time, you should just have good content up there that gets your audience happy to read your shit. Otherwise, they're not going to read your shit. They're not going to click on anything. You're going to follow to the bottom of uh Facebook's algorithm and they'll never see your stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think you guys touch on all fantastic points. And, you know, one of the things that we've done here, you know, at the management company for years is develop strategies for and with our artists based on, you know, what we've seen work for the artists that we manage, based on what we've observed from other artists, based on the research that we've done. But one of the things that, you know, I, find myself saying time and again, and, you know, this is usually when I'm back at my whiteboard in my office, you know, I say this, I say great content done consistently over time. And that applies so much to the social networks because content can come in so many different ways. And so obviously you've got music as a form of content. You've got you know, the visual part that goes with it, video, lyric video, visualizer, as I like to call, you know, some sort of artwork manipulation that doesn't include a lyric video, because sometime in the last few years, lyric videos became, you know, passe amongst certain people. And then, you know, proper music videos. But then you've got photos, obviously. You do have your shows, but more importantly, and, you know, Joey, a number of the artists that you work with, or have worked with, were, you know, on the forefront of this, you know, taking somebody along with you to capture what you're doing at a show. Because if you're playing a show in front of anywhere from, you know, 20 people to 20,000 people, if you've got a talented photographer or videographer there to capture that, and you can then put that plug that into your promotion system as well. It makes everybody, you know, feel as if, oh my God, I'm missing out on something by not having seen this band. Look at this. It was such a great show. And so to me, all these different types of content, and then you're right, plugging them into the right social network at the right time, you know, and not only time of day, which obviously there's, you know, analytics on engagement times, but also just the time of when you're doing things and not like you guys said, not just, you know, running down the same street of, okay, I'm just promoting my new single, my new single, my new single, my new single, go buy it, go buy it, go buy it, go buy it. (laughs) It's like come up with different ways, do a playthrough video that, you know, shows what's happening with your new single and don't just beat somebody over the head to say, go buy it. Just present all of the stuff that you're doing in as many different unique ways as you can. And of course, this is way easier said than done. You know, I mean, this is where artists, managers, along with labels, along with producers, along with videographers, you know, the, the whole team that goes into an established artist, that's the type of stuff that really ends up setting them apart. But, you know, I've watched plenty of young developing bands start to implement these strategies on their own because each member in the band has, you know, a certain area of expertise of content creation or a good friend who, you know, can help drive the van or help sell merch, also takes photographs or does video or you name it. And so to me, it's really, you know, again, it's this great content done consistently over time, plugged into the right networks that helps artists start to matriculate you know, up the the chain. Matriculate. I like that word. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Word of the day. <laughs> Basically, this is an SAT. This is an SAT study course. <laughs> Professor Maori. Thank you. <laughs> Hashtag um, matriculated. <laughs>
Now, I think there's a number of people listening to this going, really? Like, really? Do I need to worry about engagement times? And I think absolutely, absolutely. Because you can do this macro stuff, and that's going to be a good start, but it's only going to go so far before you need to get a little micro and actually play to your audience, so to speak, with social networking. But let's let's sidestep some of that. Real quick, before you sidestep, let me just say something about people who don't want to engage with the micro and the macro stuff you have to do with Facebook. Absolutely. I, I see all the time that people are bitching about Facebook's reachability rules and uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> how that's all changed and how nobody sees my posts anymore, blah, blah, blah. At the same time, they bitch about having to do the work to actually find out how to go about working Facebook. And the beautiful thing about Facebook is that it tells you how to work it. It's, it's like gives you videos. It gives you written out articles it shows you if you follow these steps and do this and work your content like this it's designed to get you a higher likability score and more people will see your content if people would take the time to do that they wouldn't hate facebook so much i know everyone i know who takes the time to learn how it all works thinks that facebook is great so do you know what the solution for that problem is ale what's that mcdonald's is hiring <laughs> I love that one. Uh, they let can me matriculate uh, me some French fries. Well, and, 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 and Joey, again, before we go, like to me, there, there's got to be a balance. I mean, if you're just going to focus on micro all day, you know, you're missing the point. I mean, exactly. the point again, yeah. you go, you go back to being in a band, and like, you know, being in a band is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be the time of your life, especially when you're starting out and you're developing, and like. You know, yes, there are things that you should learn and you should know, but don't miss the fact that, like, you should be having an experience and a fantastic time with hopefully some of your best friends. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge takeaway. I was going to say, just to wrap up Facebook, because I wanted to touch a little more on, on the thing that you were saying, Al. So a lot of people think that Facebook is is like, you know, maybe operated like a tyrant or something because... People hate the way that they have to pay to get their stuff seen. But what they don't realize is that's the beautiful thing that makes Facebook work. Because if it was like MySpace, where no one had to pay for things to be seen, you would end up with that. What was it? It was like the bulletins in your inbox or something like that, where it was like basically just junk mail. Yeah, um, it would be impossible. That's what keeps the riffraff out of Facebook, is the people that are really serious and taking it, taking their business serious you're going to see their stuff because they're going to be boosting their posts and they're going to be targeting the right audience. And if it wasn't that way, and if there wasn't a whole system based around doing that, Facebook would die because, you know, it would just be junk mail. Yeah. Facebook is designed to give you a customized experience based on what you like to click on. So to guys and bands out there, who are not having their posts clicked on, what that means is that people don't like what you're posting. So get that through your fucking heads and learn how to work Facebook. <laughs> My lord. This is a this is some this is this is some tough love coming at you, gentlemen. Is there um, anything anything I said that's not true? Well, I, I mean I think to me, you know, a huge part of it is also like, okay, let's have the real conversation about the other, you know, networks as well, which of course, frustrates the hell out of me. The last thing that I want to be doing or having my staff or the interns here do is have to focus on, you know, 10 different types of social networking. But, you know, Facebook, there's studies every day about how many people are actually, you know, either abandoning the platform or just not paying as much attention as they once did. Yeah. Instagram is a big one now for massive. Yeah. Yeah. Massively. So, and that's where it comes back to, you know, I, I alluded to it a little bit, you know, it's that, photographs and the video content that, you know, artists really utilize. I mean, you know, Joey, you probably are friends with him or at least know him quite well. Adam L. Machias, you know, with all yep. of the stuff that he did with, you know, the artists that he's associated himself with and helped grow. I mean, you know, there's no secret that he helped the profile of so many of those artists you know, grow faster than they would have had they not taken somebody out to capture these great photos and videos of their shows. Um, Like, you know, as I tell artists all the time, it's like, look, if there's 20 people at your show and you can make somebody, you know, if you can capture the moment 
I'm not saying fake it, you know, and make it seem like there's 500 people there. But if you can capture what you are there to convey to those 20 people and you can then go post it to, you know, if you've got 2000 followers, you've increased your, you know, reach by an interest level too. Right. By, I was going to do the math in my head and say some sort of percentage, but <laughs> since it's Friday, I quit doing math. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's also a lot of people who will look at like a band like Attila and go, oh, you know, that band's a joke and um, there's no way anything they're doing could, should be taken seriously. But if you actually look at what they're doing and look at what Franz is doing, it's working and you shouldn't ignore that. And I know you can, I'm pretty sure you can go to their Instagram right now and probably scroll down like a page and you'll see like the last tour they were on, they're doing exactly what you said. They have 15 second videos from every show date that shows what the show was like, the energy in the room. And I, it even worked on me. I, I saw a video and I was like, damn, I need to go out to a show, man. It looks, <laughs> it looks fun. Lifestyle bands. Uh, yeah. I think people confuse what the branding and message of the band is with the seriousness of the business, which I think actually means that the band did a really good job. Yeah, I would agree with that. So let's say your social networking chops are up to snuff and everything's good there. What are some other things that bands should be focusing on aside from content? Because I know you know, there's a lot of people out there who are lost. They're like, how do I get a manager? How do I get a booking agent? How do I get signed? What? Yeah. And I know right. these are all super huge, long freeways <laughs> to go down. But uh, what what's some of the core fundamentals you see time and time again, people missing? I mean, I think it's, it, it's not worrying so much about, oh, how do I get this manager to, to take me on or this booking agent to take me on? And that's the last piece of the puzzle that I'm missing. I mean, inevitably, those of us that are, you know, good at what we do, we, we do make a difference, but there's a time that we can actually make that difference. And it's once you've gone out and really started to, you know, do some of these things for yourself, it's playing shows consistently. You know, all of us that are on this, you know, call, I'm imagining have either been in bands or at least have been around bands long enough to know that how do you get better at, at playing live? Well, yeah, you got to practice for one, but then you got to go out and actually do it because we can, you know, practice in our practice space or in our, you know, respective homes as many times as we want, but there's nothing that teaches you how to engage a crowd other than being in front of a crowd. I got to echo that when my band was touring, we were just awful until we were maybe 100 shows down in our first few tours. It wasn't until around 100 shows that pretty back to back, you know, that we started to feel what it took to own a room or to not be afraid of the headliner or what to do if we're going on first and the crowd is kind of dead or what if we feel like shit or what if any of those things, none of that used to come naturally to us and it did take about a hundred shows. So yeah, you're absolutely correct. Mike, what's your take on bands playing? Like, for example, you're like a local band, right? Uh, saturating out of market. So, you know, the band that plays the same city three times a week, because for example, you were just advocating playing a ton of shows. I've heard a lot of managers advocate, well, you should never play in the same market more than, you know, once a quarter and you should blah, 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 blah. So I'm just curious what your take is. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's always so challenging. And I think it depends on the market and depends on, you know, so many things. I mean, there is, and I even say this about sign bands, you know, it's at some point doing anything. Well, up to a point, I should say, doing anything is better than doing nothing. And so let me explain that a little bit. I've worked with artists that, you know, are extremely heavy. I've worked with artists that aren't as heavy, but let's say they all fall under the greater warp tour umbrella, right? And on warp tour, the reason that that stuff works is there's a large enough audience that pulls from everything. But when you start to take it down into these smaller sort of, you know, beginning level tours, a poppier, punkier band might not want to tour with like a heavier, you know, screamo or even, you know, deathcore or metalcore band. But inevitably, the way that you build a fan base is you go out and have to actually tour and then you implement some of these other things that we're talking about. You capture the photos, you capture the video, you create content when you're out on the road, it looks like you're doing stuff, blah, 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 blah. In that case, if you took these two bands or let's say there's four bands and you're the oddball out, doing something in that case is far better than sitting at home. 
You know, you're right. If you're a pop punk band and you're playing in, with three metal bands, it's probably not like going to work long term. But inevitably, getting out there and maybe, you know, from an industry perspective, other managers might be coming, you know, there's managers like myself, most of the managers that do what I do, we work with a wide array of types of bands, agents, you name it. And so at some point, once you grow, 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 then you have to really start to think about, okay, how do we position ourselves to make sure that we're with the right types of artists? How do we not oversaturate every single market? You know, so the band who is playing those shows every week and the drummer listens to this um, episode and comes back and says, hey, guys, we need to uh, stop oversaturating our market. We, we should stop playing shows every week. <laughs> Not necessarily the best idea for a, a band who has 20 fans. Let me give you guys a little story from before my band was signed. I thought that playing as many shows as possible was the best idea possible. And I th booked us three shows in Atlanta one weekend. <laughs> Man, oh man, oh man, that was that went over so bad. I got the owners of the three clubs oh, wow. calling yeah. me on a conference call, threatening to blacklist my band from the city of Atlanta if we ever tried <laughs> to pull some shit like that again. Well, of course, and there's things like that that do you know <laughs> that that yeah, I mean that the listeners of your of your podcast don't know, you know, they don't know that promoters of any type don't want you announced multiple times in the same market at the same time. Because inevitably, if somebody's going to see, you know, if they have a choice of where to see you, they're going to be able to make that choice. If they only have one place to see you at any given time and they want to see you, they have to pick that one bit. But yeah, I mean, Joey, it is interesting. Of course, if you got 20 fans, you don't really necessarily need to worry about oversaturation of the market. But I know that I know there's somebody who is. <laughs> but I do think it is helpful to, you know, to think of a strategy and and you know, probably when you're in a local band or developing artist, like you're not thinking any further ahead than your next show or, you know, next two shows. But it could be really helpful to map out like a six month to year long plan and say, okay, you know, and start to set yourself some goals. And that just starts to help, you know, goals. And at that level, it can be really challenging to, to even set goals because you might inevitably not know what to set and you might not make them if you do set them. By this um, time next year, sell 2 million records. <laughs> well, exactly. That goes back to, you know, smart goals and they've got to be, you know, attainable. But what is helpful is to, you know, have something to reflect on and look at and say, okay, well, this is what we've tried. And, you know, hey, we played three shows in the last 12 months. You know, let's try to up that and do six shows in the next 12 months. But one, you know, big thing other than just playing is part of that playing is, you know, networking. And, the networking part of being in a band is, you know, one of the biggest, you know, things. And that comes down even at the biggest level of artists that I work with. When we go to put a tour together, who are the first five bands that they name that they want to go out with? It's their friends, you know, and obviously if their friends are in bands. That That's not necessarily the best. <laughs> I know guys in really big bands, well, who were really big, maybe they're broken up at this point, but I know guys who have been in bands that have done quite a lot of stuff and have gotten Slayer tours and Slipknot tours based off of the strength of the guy in the band who networked, who also happened to be the worst musician in the band. And yeah. they would leave him in the band because he's the guy who gets Carrie King on the phone and he's the guy who gets the invite on the tour. End of story. So... Worst musician, doesn't matter. He could network. Well, totally. And just, you know, take it back to the really small developmental level. It's like, okay, you know, like that's how you make those connections with the other artists. You know, if you're in Detroit and you're competing with the other, you know, I mean, there's some value to healthy competition, but there's also, you know, some strength in numbers. If you and one or two other bands are kind of, you know, competing with one another, 
Might it make sense for you three to team up and think about how you can support one another? And, you know, one of you take show A, one of you take show B, one of you take show C, and you all drive your friends to, to go see each respective band. And then six months down the line, you've got this nice, healthy scene that's developing as opposed to you're just trying to pick the whole thing apart, you know? And again, some of this stuff is, you know, really like, rudimentary and may not be applicable to, you know, anyone's specific given scene, but it's stuff to just sort of think about. It's like, okay, how can I, you know, position myself to have others within the area be looking out for me? So since we're talking about networking, real quick, let's shift to producers, not band members, because we talk to a lot of producers via this podcast. A lot of the guys who listen to this are both band members and upcoming production guys. But how do you engineer producer guys go about networking? Do you have any thoughts about that? Because it's a, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit harder for them, I think. Well, I, I want to be clear because I can think of this question in two ways. One is how can you like interact with each other. I don't know if that's what you're asking or more. No, more network for the uh, purpose of getting clients. However, networking amongst each other can help you get clients. Right. I mean, again, I think it's, you do everything in your power to talk to people and whether that's in person um, as old people like me still enjoy doing or whether it's online, you know, it's all incredibly helpful. I was, you know, I'm a big consumer of podcasts and I was listening to um, Jamie Josta's podcast this week, yesterday that had Zeus on there, you know, and it was really interesting to hear him say, like, he still makes the rounds. He goes out and he sees bands and, you know, he keeps in touch with them and he goes, you know, an event, he's on a level where he knows managers and label A&R guys and, you know, all of that, but he doesn't take his reputation or any of that for granted. He's constantly and consistently going out and, you know, making people aware of his existence. And so take it to, you know, somebody who's developing it's, you know, it's just like being in a band when we say play shows. I mean, how did you guys get better at, you know, your craft record bands? <laughs> exactly. You did it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and if you worried about 50 bucks here or there, you know, us, us people who are older and have worried about 50 bucks in our past can tell you that, you know, it's 50 bucks and, you know, it's not that big a deal in the grand scheme of life. And if you can record a band for free and you got to wait a table at night or work, you know, another job, like it's well worth doing in order to get that experience. And then if you're good at it, eventually, as I know, you know, you guys all have been, that's how, people start to then come to you as opposed to you having to go reach out to them as much. I think we're touching on a, a sort of a macro business topic here. And I, I want to see if you agree. I see a lot of people who they'll be like, okay, I, I want to be, um, I want to be a, a, a big producer, but if, if I'm going to be a big, awesome and great producer, I'm going to need to know how to produce really well. So I'm going to sit here in my bedroom and watch videos and never actually produce. And I think a lot of the things like that we do, cause we're, you know, a little bit entrepreneurs ourselves and we like to create businesses and companies. One of the things that we always pride ourselves on, I think is to say, you know, just do it, make the mistakes and learn from them and get out there and do it. Do you see that being a way to go about approaching music as well? Because I think there's probably bands are, who are probably sitting there going, oh, we need really great songs. We shouldn't play any shows until we get great songs. Or uh, we have great songs, but we're not very good live. So let's practice in our garage a whole bunch before we go out. And and, and you should do some of that. But well, you should do a lot of it. I mean, you should do a lot of it. But at some point, you <laughs> got to get out there and actually do it. You're correct. And, you okay. know. Jump into it, the deep end. It's even. Yeah. And. You know, it's take a chance and take a chance on on yourself and do understand that all of us on this call have failed multiple times and have learned things, you know, the hardest way of hardest ways. And even still in the privileged positions that we sit in based on the hard work that we've put in, we're still failing 
occasionally and still learning lessons every single day. And it's about being mature enough to understand that that's just part of the overall process. You're exactly right. I mean, you know, it's finding the courage to overcome that fear to you know, to go out there and play the show or go out there and do a really, really, really horrible mix of, you know, your friend's song and have him come back and tell you that it's God awful. But (laughs) if you just change these 17 things, it might start to work. And then you, you know, you work on those 17 things. And, you know, the next time you do one, only 15 things suck. And, you know, eventually by doing it, you hone that craft. And in the case of great producers, there's a little bit of an X factor, right? I mean, you know, you can't, just like great artists, I think persistence and sweat is 90% of it, but there's that 10% kind of X factor that, you know, those of you on the call have had that, you know, allows you to really elevate to kind of that top tier. Yeah, but that that X factor isn't, the stuff that people should be worried about because either you've got it or you don't. Well, correct. And, and in some senses you can, you can hone it along the way. Yeah, Um, for sure. You know, but it's gotta, it's gotta be there to begin with though. Yes, you are correct. Okay. So let's move into some of the audience comments and questions because this is going to actually illustrate a lot of the points that we (laughs) talked about. Nice. (laughs) So the first one, which is just, It's great. Uh, Our user, Mark, he's asking, what do you think about bands buying ads on social media like sponsored posts? Does it work for bands or is it money down the drain and why? (laughs) I mean, I guess the question is, what are you promoting? You know, like, are you there is a strategy to it for sure. You know, and like I all said, you know, there is information that exists that on Facebook that can tell you, you know, the proper ways or maybe not proper, but, you know, can give you a strategic advantage to, you know, figuring out how to boost those posts. Yeah, they lay it right out for you. If people just go to Facebook for business, they've got tutorials and everything. It couldn't be any easier. But it is one of those things, you know, just having a product and making more people aware of it isn't necessarily going to, you know, convert into sales. Um, no, that's just the first step. Right. I think this is a perfect example of people not being educated about how Facebook works and what it is and how it's powerful and, and what it can do for you. I think a lot of people will see the media examples that say like, or maybe not even media, maybe it's just just really honestly stupidity. People sharing things that aren't facts, you know, saying, well, you know, Facebook is, it's a waste of money to be promoting your, your posts and blah, 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 blah. It's really sad to see that. And I think to answer this guy's question I think it can work for you. You just have to know how your audience is going to respond to what it is that you're promoting and how to get them engaged in that. And also to know what the point of the post is, because like Mike just said, it's not necessarily going to lead to a conversion. I just want to take that a step further and say that Facebook isn't designed to sell stuff. It's designed to be a social network and you are allowed to use it to spread awareness about your products and your services. So if you make a boosted post and do a really good job with it, writing things up, and you do, in fact, get people's awareness, it's done its job. But then it's on to you to engage them further and get the sale. But that's not Facebook's job. And if you confuse the job of Facebook with the job of selling, you're going to be very disappointed. Well, let me give a, a real, you know, as we're talking through this, I think of a number of the artists that I work with who are, you know, most successful. And you would think, you know, with the level of success that they've had, they would sit back and just, you know, either allow us to handle these sponsored type posts or whatever it may be. But so many of them, you know, they'll put up whether it's tour dates with VIP tickets, whether they're selling a new single, whether we're selling a new T-shirt. And these guys will go in and like you said, I'll they will engage with the fans that are on there and, you know, essentially convert sales. I mean, I hate to say it like that because you know, this is where it, be, you know, the, the business part of it does take over. Um, you know, and there's some psychology in doing that. Go in, make the person feel engaged. And so, if you're in a developing band, 
you got to employ that same strategy. If somebody likes the post, you know, go in and start talking to them like, Hey, what did you like about this? You know, did you like the music? Did you like the branding? Did you like this? Or where are you from? Or any of that stuff, just start to develop a relationship with them and continue to do so, you know, throughout the length of your career. Yeah, absolutely. Just making people aware that you have something is not enough, even though it's clearly the first step, because if they're not aware, they're not going to, they can't buy an album or go to a show they're not aware of. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it sounds dumb to say that, but just to be clear, that's like the main goal for Facebook is to get people aware of what's going on. And to do that, you have to be non-annoying and engaging. But then to even get them to the next step, to do what Mike said, your content has to be on point and all these other things have to be done correctly to get them to that next step where they go to your site and actually go through with paying for something. So you don't want to jump the gun and try to get them to pay for something on Facebook when you're just spamming them with some show event that they're not even sure they want to go to and they probably haven't even heard of you. So user Jonathan has a question. What can be the benefits of a producer having a manager? I've heard many things of it being a bad thing. But then again, I guess it's who you work with. Joey, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I've talked about this a few times on the show, and I've told people, you know, I had a manager and he was everything for my career, but then there was a point when he was not. And uh, that's not a bad thing. You know, we we mutually parted ways in all, in all of that. But let's talk about someone who's never had a manager or someone who doesn't, you know, realize doesn't realize if they need one. Yeah, and uh, let me just say that this kid has asked me this question about three different times over the past year. You must not have answered it sufficiently. (laughs) I'm not giving him the answer he wants, which is that he's not ready for one. Right. I mean, listen, I can say this as somebody who manages producers and someone who interacts with producers and their managers. I mean, I'm in a very privileged position because most of the producers who have managers – I can go directly to them. That said, I respect the professional protocol of only going to them to talk about the things that we should talk about. And that is the creativity, the artist at hand, all of that. When it comes to the business, I turn to the manager. And so, you know, it can be very hard. This is sometimes why a band can have a manager too. It's somebody to sort of step in and, you know, Deal with the harder things. If you're a producer who is ready and has reached a certain level and can, you know, command a certain amount of money, but aren't comfortable telling, you know, your friends that or whatever else, that is sort of the manager's job. They're there to look after your best interests. And they also can and should be helping you get opportunities. And that's one of the things to me, and this can be for artists or you know, producers is, you know, your manager is somebody that's, that's there to help you like long term. And, you know, if the relationship is right. And so, you know, I've dealt with this with, again, both bands and I haven't dealt with it as much on the producer side, but it's, I call it like the last shot syndrome. And so it goes down to by the last shot, I mean, the last shot in a basketball game. And so I say, if you've got a team, you know, and this is more so with a band, but again, can pl- apply to a producer. On the band instance, you got manager, booking agent, label, band, number of other people. And let's say the label gets you on a tour, right? And I've had this example very early on in my career. The label got an artist on the tour, and the head of the label then turned to me and said, I got this tour, you get the next one. In almost like a I'm doing your job for you kind of kind of way. <laughs> and I had to really think about it. And I went home and I thought about it and I said, you know, if I'm on the Chicago Bulls in circa whenever Michael Jordan was, you know, the fucking badass that he was, or, you know, let's say you're on LeBron James team and that's the superstar that's designed to take that last shot, right? But let's say he's triple teamed, triple guarded, and he passes the ball to the, you know, the other dude who takes that last shot, like there's nothing wrong. You guys won the game. The whole idea is that the entire team, the goal is to win the game. And in a band's case and a producer's case, it's to develop the career or get the job. And so it doesn't really matter who landed it. And so the specific would be, let's say I manage Joey Sturgis and Joey Sturgis says to me, damn, Mike, I've gotten my last three projects. 
You know, what are you doing for me? And I turn around to Joey and say, well, thankfully, you know, you've got these great relationships and these three projects have allowed me to then go speak to, you know, these bigger A&R guys at these bigger labels or whatever. And, you know, I'm working those relationships for you. So in six months time, when this big record comes down the pipeline, I can deliver that for you. And so, you know, and simultaneously look after it. So I'm negotiating the right fee for you. I'm negotiating hopefully the right, you know, points for you, if that's, you know, something or the percentage splits on your publishing or whatever it may be. But that's so far beyond the realm that a regional or local level producer lives in. You're correct. So, yeah, I mean, what? go back to the exact wording of the original question for me. Yeah, well, he said that he's heard it being a bad thing and he's wondering what the benefits of a producer having a manager is. I would say a lot of producers probably don't know how to run a, an LLC for, for starters. A lot of producers probably don't separate business finances and, and personal finances. These are all things that I think a manager would step in and, and probably help with and would be valuable for someone who, you know, if you're, if you're up to the level, you know, maybe you're starting to make 20, 30K a year, or maybe you're even up to 60K a year, you should really think about getting a manager, I think. Yeah, but I think that it can be a bad thing when you're below that level because you might have some yes. unrealistic expectations. First of all, the managers you'll be able to attract when you're that low on the totem pole are going to be that low on the totem pole as well. And then at that point, what's the point? Why are you feeding another mouth that can't do anything for you? Like the idea with the manager is also to have someone who's got access to places you don't have access to, relationships you don't have. And if you're only making 15 grand a year or something off your recording, who do you think you're going to attract as a manager? So what's the real reason to do it? So to me, I think it's just bad because until you're bigger, you're not going to attract good people. If you don't attract good people, you're just spinning your wheels. Yeah. I think it's important to note that as a producer, you should really focus on building your brand and being the absolute best you can be. And then you'll attract the kind of people that you need to work with to help you take yourself to the next level. Yeah. I mean, I think these are fantastic points and I was, you're right, probably digging in a little on a deeper level. No, it's great. No, but that's great to explain why it matters down the road. People should know why it is a good thing eventually, but as much as they should know why it's not the most helpful thing initially. Completely. And, and I, lastly, I think all I, I can say to that is the better, and I think you guys have said this already, but I'm just going to emphasize it. It's that in any case, band, producer, you name it, if you've built something where there's, you know, real managers or agents or labels coming to you, that's such a better position to be in than if you're trying to go and knock down those people's doors to get them to pay attention to you. And that's a fine line because at some point you'll have done enough work and, you know, want people to be aware of you. But really, you know, it's about like you guys said, it's doing that work, building the business on your own to a point where a manager can come in and actually make a difference for you. And then everybody wins. Absolutely. So I think this might be the last question unless anyone else has anything, but let me read this. So this is from user Jonathan. He says, I emailed a few label management firms a while ago with a mini bio and a portfolio about possibly having the opportunity to work with artists they work with. But with a slew of emails, they get I can completely understand how mine probably went unnoticed. What's the best option I have to get in touch with industry professionals? Ah, man, that's a Pandora's box of... uh... And let let me interrupt you before you answer this. Let me just say that somebody who you don't know asked me to give out your contact info yesterday, and I didn't, of course. But that's not a way to do it. Don't don't just <laughs> randomly give people's contact info out or ask for it. It's crazy because there's this like fine line, and and I am the exception to the rule. I'm the underdog who wants everyone to have a shot. Like that's who I've been, and that's how I've prided myself. Which is different than 
you know, than a lot of other people. And it's burned me at, from time to time, but it's just, you know, the nature of the type of person who I am. It is, it's hard. I mean, I think it's funny. I took a trip with, you know, my dad and my brother and a couple of our younger like nieces and nephews. And it was, you know, a Friday afternoon and we were all hanging out at a restaurant and, you know, it was probably four or five in the afternoon and I was on my phone and everybody was kind of like, giving me a little bit of shit for still being on my phone. And I broke it down that like, I probably get on a, on any given day, you know, somewhere between 200 and 500 emails. And, you know, you should have just watched their jaws drop to the floor because, you know, here's younger people, you know, and if you're in a band, your inbox is probably a note from your mom saying like, Hey, I hope that, you know, I hope you, (laughs) it's from your buddy. It's from, you know, the porn site that you signed up for, you know, whatever it is. And that's the hater in the other local band. (laughs) Exactly. And that's no disrespect. I mean, believe me, there was a time when I had none of that. And there's sometimes I wish for those more simple times, but I think the point is people are busy. And you're right. Like you got to find a way to stand out again, just as you, you know, and again, I, I, the question's a little unclear to me as to what, like how he wants to help the, the question, the person asking the question, like he says, like he reached out to label management to help their artists. Is that what the question was? He wants label work as a producer oh, or whatever he, his services. Right, right, right. Basically give me one of your artists to mix, blah, 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 blah. I can do it better than the guys right. you hire. Yeah. And you're right. That stuff's going to totally go. You know, what I'm finding, and I actually would be curious to hear your guys' perspective on this. One of the things that, you know, I've found is that so many artists, as they come up, they already kind of have a producer buddy in mind that they've worked with yep. or whatever. And that's the guy that gets that record until, you know, they've, they've sort of, I don't know, decide to try something new. You know, we see that on the producer side on, of management, you know, we'll go out and, you know, we've asked labels, asked this and asked that. And they're like, you know, cool, this band we just signed, they've, you know, they made their last record that, you know, we loved with producer X and that's who the band wants to go with for this record. And so it almost goes back to how do you go find those young bands in your scene, hone your skills, you know, just as you know, someone like Joey did, obviously, you know, you took these artists, you made the name for yourself and then the work started coming to you. (laughs) Yeah. I've, I focused on two things. One was, um, get in good with the bands themselves because, you know, you want to be in a position where people like you and they want to be your friend and then they will want to work with you. But, but it's not just that. The other thing was just do a fucking good job. Like (laughs) just do good work and then people will be attracted to that. You know, that's, that's what they want is they want a good job done on their music. And if you do that and then you're also a cool guy or you're at least friendly, you'll go pretty far. It's not about how many emails can I send every night? How many contacts can I find on the internet? How, how many management websites do I know about? Do you know this, this guy's email address? Not about any of that. I don't think I I would agree. I mean, it's almost like you're searching for a needle in a haystack, you know, your better opportunity is, you know, doing a great job with a small band that, you know, may or may not have a manager. And then that person like, you know, and this has happened to me a number of times. I mean, the way that I got into producer management was, you know, I was driving certain artists to producers who I thought they were doing such a good job, you know, that I would then circle back and bring other bands to them. (laughs) And I bet it was people that you didn't necessarily heard from before, Correct. right? Yeah. It, yeah. it was almost always an artist that I found or liked or came to me, you know, said, oh, wow, who made this? Oh, it was, you know, Nick Sampson. Holy crap. This is great. I've got this. Speaks for you itself. Know, I've got this next young artist that I really like and want to develop. And a huge thing for me, I mean, this is where producers on the on the developing artist side are so valuable in this day and age when anybody can figure out how to make a, you know, a semi-decent sounding song. When I find a band that I like in that capacity, I send it to one of you guys, you know, you tried and true dudes that I know can make a song sound good no matter what. And you can tell me the band has the chops. 
You know, you can tell me this kid can sing. You can tell me this guitar player can play. You know, he didn't just write it all in, you know, Guitar Pro and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and can't do it. You know, and then that's only one part of it. Can they play live? All this stuff, you know, yada, yada, yada. But yeah, yeah it is. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. And, the, and as we talk, like to me. I'm almost overwhelmed in some senses, you know, I'm like, shit, if I'm sitting here listening to this podcast, these guys are giving out all this pretty helpful information, but there's so much of it. But I think if you break it, we do this every week, buddy. Right. And if you, and, and, if, you, <laughs> and if you break it down, you know, into the smaller steps, you know, of all these things, like, you know, there's probably some kid that's listened to our answer that says, okay, well, how do I find that local band and, and that great local band that's going to put me on the map? And it's, well, you might have to find 20 of them before the first one that's, that's that is great. Zero. Yeah, 200 of them. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing that all our producer guests who come on here answer uh, when, yeah. when you ask them how they got started or all that. The one thing that we've got in common with everybody, whether it's Kurt Ballou or someone way from a different genre, different era or whatever – Everybody started the exact same way. They had to somehow just do enough work and try hard enough until they found a band that worked. And that meant eating a lot of shit at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, another thing, and this applies to, I mean, shit, you know, any of the stuff we're talking about within music or, you know, the bigger thing at large, you know, and you guys as entrepreneurs know this, like, you cannot speed up time. Like, there is a, you know, time ticks off second by second by second. And again, there's exceptions to every rule. Some projects sort of land in your lap and they explode, but almost inevitably, everybody has to take the same amount of time. They got to do the stuff over that time consistently. And eventually it all, you know, it sort of reached this critical mass. And then you finally got a single or an album or an EP that, and you know, that somebody fucking remotely gives a shit about. Yeah. You can only eat a pizza one slice at a time. That's true. But you can, if you fold the slices in half, then you can eat them faster. Well, <laughs> let me pile on that because I want to reiterate a point Mike made way earlier in the podcast is that I was always like the very focused person when I played in a band or, you know, even referring this to producing or whatever. You have to enjoy the damn process because being a very goal oriented, driven person, when you're coming up, you're always focused on the big picture and you're always miserable because you're so singularly focused on that one thing. When you finally get to it, you've already set 30 goals that are 20 times more lofty and you don't care about the goal. So you have to sit down every day and ask yourself, why am I doing this and am I enjoying it and how can I enjoy it more? It's not about the destination. It's about the journey for sure. Yeah. It's important to note that I feel like. Yeah. That's very, I mean, again, I think all of us, you know, and we now have the perspective that allow us to look back that way. You know, one of the things I think helps me in what I do is even though, you know, I turn 42 tomorrow. Happy uh, birthday. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Don't ask us to sing. We're terrible. Is that I really try to think back and put myself into the shoes of my artists. Even when my artists frustrate me to no end, they want things too quickly. They're unreasonable. You name it. I think, okay, if I was 20, 21, 22, 23, like how would I look at this? And you know, even though when I was that age, we didn't have some of these same, you know, tools that people have now that I think actually make a lot of that even worse. You know, I do try to put myself in that position and really think, all right, this is how and why you're making that decision. And you might not care about the fucking process right this second. You might not care about the journey. And all we can do is try to tell you that, you know, that is what it is. I don't know. End of rant. It's the hardest thing to do and the easiest thing to understand. You might not care about the journey, but you're going on yeah. it anyways. So <laughs> learn to love it. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Take like pride in the very small accomplishments. And I'm guilty of this too. You know, it's like, you know, I want to run to the top of the mountain, stand atop and shout to the world that I'm at the top. But sometimes, you know, if it's a seven day fucking climb up Everest or however long that thing takes, a lot of people don't ever make it to base camp. So, you know, when you play your first show on a big bill, and even if you had to sell 50 tickets to do it, like, give yourselves a high five. You know, you, you made it part of the way there. And that's a lot more than many, many other people will do. And then it's about focusing on that next step. 
So always a next step. Mike, thanks so much for being on the show. It's great to have you on here. Um, and thanks for your insight and perspective on everything. Is there anything that you want to plug or talk about to, to close oh, this off? You're too kind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to plug, of course, uh, you know, what we do, Outer Loop Management and Outer Loop Records. And uh, one of the things that I launched just recently is a podcast network with a couple other people, Jabberjaw Media. So you can check that out at uh, jabberjawmedia.com. There's a couple great, like, music-focused podcasts, and it's been, you know, again, part of my journey of this interesting music business and how it continues to uh, evolve and develop. So thank you guys for having me. It's a pleasure, and we'll have to set one of these up where I just get to ask you guys a bunch of questions. Yes, let's do it. I'm down. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. All righty. All right, thanks. Thanks, thanks, thanks a lot, dude. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Focusrite, supplying hardware and software products used by professional and amateur musicians, which enables the high-quality production of music. Focusrite, sound is everything. Visit Focusrite.com for more information. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today. Hey!